Hey everybody, welcome to episode 17 of the Movement as Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Carr. Um, I believe when I intro this later on the podcast with our guest, I actually say it's episode 16, but ignore that because I never know which episode it is without Brendan reminding me and he wasn't available for this one. Um, And this episode was really awesome. I sat and I interviewed my friend Josh Funk, Dr. Josh Funk, I should say specifically, Um, and he is the owner and founder of Rehab to Perform, which is a physical therapy clinic located in the Maryland area. They have seven locations. They're just about to expand their eighth into Virginia, Um, and we had a great talk about all things business, physical therapy, um, growing as a practitioner from being you know, the physical therapist or being the coach, if you're a fitness person listening to this and changing your mindset into becoming a CEO, a business owner, so that your business can scale effectively in all of the things you need to do to be able to do that. Um, I really enjoyed it. He's someone who I've watched, I've known for a handful of years, and I've been able to watch him grow his business in a fairly short time to a really impressive operation um, and seeing him grow as an individual um, just from the outside in. Um, and how he looks at managing and running a business. And and he gave some amazing insights. Um, He was very honest about his experiences, the mistakes he's made, the things that he's learned, um, and and kind of how he's grown. And I think as a fitness professional or physical therapist listening to this, this would be a really, really good listen for you um, to help you realize, you know, what's possible. I think a lot of people in this field um, have an entrepreneurial mindset. They want to work for themselves. They have an idea of starting a business, but the idea is too intimidating to be able to grow and scale effectively. And so to learn from someone who in a fairly short time has done an amazing job growing uh, a really amazing business, um, scaling to multiple locations, um, there's some really great gems you can get out of this interview. So I really think you're going to enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in and uh, see you next time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Movement is Medicine podcast. This is episode 16. I'm your host, Kevin Carr. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing and talking with my friend, Josh Funk of Rehab to Perform. And uh, thanks for coming on, Josh. Appreciate you having here. Absolutely. Big fan of your guys over the years. Uh, The whole MBSC fam and the uh, definitely fan of what you guys are doing with the Certified Functional Strength Coach as well. So just happy to be on here and happy to be able to share a little bit. Yeah, and so um, I'm going to have you kind of introduce yourself, but I think we, you and I probably met, I think it was, I don't know how many years ago, I think we met at a course at Kevin Neal's place. I don't know which one yes. it was. I don't know if it, I've been to a bunch there, whether it was like a PRI course or whatever, one of the courses he was hosting. I think we met way back, um, probably in the early 2010s, 2013, 2014, something like that. Um, and I've just had the pleasure of watching your career develop and you build rehab to perform over the last decade or so and and really start to scale and grow yourself as a practitioner, but really grow yourself as a businessman. Um, And so this opportunity, Brent and I don't always take a lot of interviews, but we wanted to try to talk to people who I think are in our community of coaches or therapists, people who I think are a good reflection of the values and things that we care about in this industry um, and talk to you so the other people in our industry can kind of, one, learn about you, but also take some lessons from your experiences that have been helpful to you and then hopefully apply them for themselves. Um, so, you know, why don't you kind of, you know, give a little background about yourself, where you're from, and kind of how you got into physical therapy and, and, and where you are now? 
Yeah, so for me, I mean, I, I think a lot of the roots start probably back um, in my younger years. Um, two different tracks. I had this very, very active, uh, you know, outgoing personality, played a lot of different sports, um, was very, very much into the sciences. You can kind of see where that's going with regards to potentially ending up in a career like physical therapy, where you're talking a lot, you're on your feet, you're working with active clientele. And then there's this other track where I kind of had the entrepreneurial bug at a very, very young age. I was doing uh, newspapers actually as early as middle school, where I was the paper boy. Um, that spun <laughs> off then into swim lessons and lacrosse lessons when I was in high school. I actually created my first company, um, a lacrosse services company, when I started out in uh, in college, which is the, the sport that I ended up playing. So there's kind of these different uh, touch points where these two things are developing in, in parallel. And I eventually got hurt at Ohio State and had such a good experience with my rehab process while I was in the sports medicine environment there, how healthcare was communicated to me, how I was challenged, how connected um, I was with the environment in a situation where sometimes it can be very, very tough not to be with your teammates out on the field. Um, and it was yeah, it was just so easy for me to go, this is what I'm going to do when I'm older. And it was not until after the the time in which I'd gone through the rehab process and was going home for summer after my sophomore year where I went home and I got to experience healthcare as it really is, which <laughs> was just a very, very underwhelming environment, underwhelming experience. I think you're sterile, white walls. Um, very, very much like physician type of environment that was how PT was being portrayed. I remember leaving after my second session and going, I'm never going back because the two times that I went were very, very much like early stage stuff I was doing at Ohio State. It just felt so remedial. So I felt like this person really couldn't couldn't speak my language. The environment wasn't set up to uh, really support me. I remember just being in there and kind of going, wow, like it's so quiet. Nobody talks to each other. It's just, I just can't see myself coming back here. I'd rather just go to the gym and <laughs> honestly talk to my PT and ATC over the phone. And that was kind of where the whole idea came from. Um, you know, I wanted to create this division one athletics environment, having seen other things like the old athletes performance back in the day, places like Fisher sports, some of these places that were a little bit more designed towards like the higher elite level clientele uh, and, and sitting here and kind of going, well, why can't we do this for Gen Pop? And that's really honestly where the whole idea of rehab to reform came about. It's amazing how common the experience that you described is that the light bulb, you had that moment where you saw someone as a therapist who made you say, I want to do this for a living like you, an athlete who has an injury that that experience opened it up for you. I know for me, actually, I also had a shoulder labrum injury hey. uh, in high school and I had a repair. And that experience to me was like, I really want to work in the sports setting, whether it's in rehabilitation or sports performance. I was rehabbing at the health point where at the time was where the Celtics practice. And they had a really great private facility there where yet yeah, they got us to lift weights. And I went back to my team and I was, doing the exercises they would give me. I would train. I would go to PT. And it was this whole kind of enveloped experience. And I saw the great experience and similar to you later on in my career, I also saw the negative, right? So valuable for you to see 
what you also don't want to experience or what you don't want to be able to deliver to other people. So it's amazing how common when you talk to people in our field who kind of have that same experience where there was a practitioner that showed them, oh, this is something that is an opportunity that I could do for a living that I could pursue in my career as well. Absolutely. I mean, when I look back at it, Janine Ullman, and she's still, uh, she's actually since been promoted. She's an assistant AD at Ohio State now. Um, but she was that first person for me that really kind of shed a, shed a new light. And I remember going back to see her in, you know, in the fall of my junior year. And she was like, welcome to healthcare, Josh. This is, uh, this is a bubble. <laughs> that you're in. And I just I kept thinking to myself, well, why, why is it such a bubble? And why does it have to be such a bubble? Um, and our relationship grew. My relationship with the strength coaches while I was there grew, the athletic trainers. And then trying to find places where I could interact with people that were, were doing stuff outside of the box or more like that Division One athletics and pro environment. Um, I can think about places like Mike Boyle, similar area. Um, you know, you've got John Paloff up there. You've got Mike Reinald, some people that I definitely sought uh, insight from and, and, and to learn from through those early years. But uh, it, it really wasn't until I went through a little bit of, of working for other people after graduate school where I started to kind of have a better idea of where I wanted to take things from a business standpoint. And as you mentioned, uh, and we'll dive into, there's a whole lot uh, of, a, of, of a difference between being the, the clinician, wanting to do things a certain way, and then being able to actually put that into practice from a, from a business standpoint. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, from an early age, you probably had a little bit of an entrepreneurial mindset. You mentioned a paper route, you mentioned swimming lessons, you mentioned uh, a sports business. And yeah, also something else you hear a lot with people is like, I think it's important or a lot of people sometimes, I don't know, naturally have that where they think, I'm just going to go out and get it for myself or build something that I think suits me. So you either have freedom and autonomy or can deliver a product or service that kind of aligns more with your values than if you went and worked somewhere else. And so you mentioned when you first got out of school, you probably worked some other places, but at what point did you say, Hey, I really want to dive in and build the vision of what I want and go into business for myself. Cause it's a big leap. I think there's a lot of fitness professionals listening who, you know, especially now more than ever, uh, with that internet and the way things with COVID have gone over the last few years, think, okay, I want to be self-employed and I want to, I want to be an entrepreneur. What kind of pushed you to make that jump in your career to just dive in and, and start rehab to perform it? Is that what, that what you started with originally? Yeah. I, I think for mm -hmm. me, I, I knew that I needed to develop and it wasn't until later where I actually could kind of put a, a term on them. But for me now, I, I'll communicate it as the three C's. I needed to have intellectual capital, financial capital, and social capital. When it came to the intellectual capital, I needed to be able to deliver a high quality, ser quality service or knew how to deliver a high quality service. And I needed to have baseline business practice. Then from a financial capital standpoint, I needed to be good at personal finance and business finance. And then the social capital piece I needed to be able to tie myself into two different communities. One was my professional community, and then the other one was the community uh, in, in the area in which I was looking to serve. So I graduated in May of 2011. Uh, I knew who the two private practice owners in the area were that I thought potentially would be good places to, to learn, and I worked for both of them. And it was not until about three and a half years in where I put myself in a situation where I could cut the cord. 
Fortunately, I had that lacrosse services company where we had camps, clinics, club teams. Um, that ended up developing into a 280-kid program. So that side hustle was a great place for me to learn business practices, honestly screw up a decent amount, mm-hmm. um, while then having the income to cut the cord and, and kind of push the chips all to the center where I no longer had the security of my day job. And then it was you know December of 2014 where I – uh, you know, signed our, our first sublease. We were in a, let's see, 1200 square foot facility, uh, in between two turf fields, paying about 2,100 bucks a month, flat rate. We had access to the gym facility there. Um, and, uh, yeah, at that point, it's just a, it's a dream. And I I can still remember the, the day where honestly on day one, we did not have the flooring finished. We had treatment (laughs) tables out in the gym space on the turf waiting for the floor guy to, to finally show up on time. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting to look back on it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been, been, been quite the journey and yeah. Would you do stuff a little bit differently? Uh, potentially, but Hey, I wouldn't be where I am today without all of those, uh, experiences, good or bad. Yeah. You know, you just kind of hit the ground running and, and figure it out, uh, as you go. And you mentioned something that was really interesting. You talked about, you know, having a side hustle that turned into something that actually gave you the freedom to launch the main thing that you wanted. And I think a lot of people, when it comes to entrepreneurship or starting a business, they think they just have to dive in. And what they don't realize is behind what they see, what other people are doing, there's usually something that people were doing on the side to help start to transition them out of their nine to five or their day job that they want to get out of. And what you mentioned was it was a safe space or an incubator for you to fail safely and start to learn things um, before you could start to level up to something else that probably had larger consequences, more money behind it, um, and was ultimately a bigger risk. And so something I tell a lot of our staff, we have a lot of people who work for us, who we also encourage to be entrepreneurial and build a brand while they still are with us or um, develop, you know, businesses within our business as we have with CFSC or MBSC online or MBSC TV, all these other kind of um, umbrella businesses that we have in MBSC, I always tell them like, hey, start now because we're going to give you just enough to start to make some money, learn how to do things um, on your own, start to make mistakes safely so that we can grow it into something larger. And I think that's important because I think a lot of people think you just show up and start a business. But in reality, there was a lot of practice um, probably in that sports services business for years prior uh, where you learned a lot. Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you said incubator. And I think that um, the, the thing that I had the ability to do was to take something I was really, really good at in an environment where there's absolutely um, little to no risk, which is when I was in college, right? Yeah. You're literally trying to make beer money for, for, for when you're in college <laughs> during the summers. Like you're taking private lessons on, you're doing clinics. And I got to a point where I I built a camp up that actually ended up having almost 90 kids um, at one point. But, you know, fast forward to about 10 years later uh, and you put yourself in a situation where, like, yeah, then you have 280 kids and it it just kind of compounds. You know, it wasn't Mm -hmm. something that happened right out of the gates. It was a byproduct of that. Uh, private lesson that I had done in swimming, where I was doing private lessons in small groups in swimming. So uh, a lot of people look at successful people or uh, a successful business, and they maybe run into this comparison game that I think we're all guilty of at one stage or the other. But 
you know, they forget all of the different steps that went into, and I'm a big believer in the aggregation of marginal gains, but you're aggregating all of these different marginal gains in a wide variety of different areas. And if I, you know, oversimplified it with regards to the three C's there, I mean, there's obviously so many more things that kind of compound uh, and allow you to put yourself in a position where, you know, at this stage of the game, we, we feel like we're a snowball kind of going down the, the that mountain a little bit versus the beginning. You're just looking to put a couple flakes together. Yeah. And it reminds me of uh, talking with Mike Boyle, talking about MBSC growing into a business, uh, him talking about at the time he was an athletic trainer at Boston University, he wasn't a strength and conditioning coach. He's an ATC by, by license. And they didn't even have strength and conditioning back then. And so he was working as an ATC, but then just training them on the side not getting paid for extra time and over time um then was training them the kids in the summers when he wasn't working with them running camps right and over time these camps had grown until the point where he started like a real private business it was like oh i have to hire some people and then eventually convinced boston university to just hire him as a strength coach instead because they didn't have a strength coach uh where he was just training all the athletes and then eventually that became mike boyle strength conditioning out of you know years of him you know running camps, starting to do it voluntarily, doing things on the side and eventually into the business that it is today. And so there's a lot of legwork and like you said, trial and error and practice that kind of goes into figuring that out. Um, and so now if we kind of fast forward to launching Rehab to Perform, where was the first location? Because you have what, seven locations now? Is that correct? Seven, soon to be a couple more here, to be honest. We're, uh, yeah, we're, we're in a situation where we're kind of feeling confident, Went through the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. It was a very, very validating time period for us, and we're going to kind of keep keep rolling the dice. But uh, to answer your original question, started in Frederick. Um, feel very, very fortunate that the community, uh, although it could be a little bit of kind of that quote-unquote good old boys network, um, after about two years kind of has really, really opened up to us and embraced us. Uh, we're actually in the process of expanding our facility there and adding about 80% to the uh, – uh, square footage going from a 5,000 square foot space to a 9,000 square foot space. So um, that uh, it started though, not necessarily in our own brick and mortar, but it started mm -hmm. in a sublet space. So another, you know, example of like, even what you see was not what you got initially, uh, especially during a situation where we were, we were sharing space. We're in a sublet facility. We're in the middle of sporting fields, you know, you can't control the noise, you can't control the music, you can't control when cleaning is done, you can't control the branding, um, and, and you put yourself in a very, very uh, safe-to-fail environment, uh, and then eventually get to a point where within about, what was it, about 18 months? Yeah, about 18 months, we were in a situation where we honestly got asked to leave, which is always an interesting <laughs> uh, story. Uh, the, the, the space... The owner of the facility had had a personal training company. And needless to say, we were doing really well. And it's not to speak negatively about the personal training company, but he just wanted us to be feeding the personal training company that was there. Now, mm -hmm. a big part of our business is relationships out in the community with a lot of different entities. And if we are to start to kind of shop, uh, you know, our, our referrals or cut things at the, at the knees, so to speak, um, by using somebody who had entrusted us with a client to then feed this other entity just because we were sharing space. Like, 
Mm-hmm. That's just not a good way to do things. And we had complained about the music. I mean, there were certain time periods and, you, you know, we can get into a whole thing when it comes to culture. But, you know, when when, when you're walking around with, with young females and there's certain music that's a little bit uh, questionable um, and, and you're having to make excuses for uh, that side of things, you're having to make excuses for cleanliness and all of these things that you just aren't in control of. You're hoping in the back of your mind that you have the opportunity to create abundance where you can put yourself in a situation. But instead, we just got pushed uh, into a situation where we didn't realize it at the time. But when we opened up that new space, it must have been just what people needed to know that we were a validated product. Because after we went into that new space, um, our growth trajectory has just been significant. Uh, not only there, but, but throughout the rest of the company, but I always tell people, you know, I, I, I've been thrown out of, of, of a lease before. Um, and that's not something to be proud of, but it's one of those things that hopefully people can look at and go, you know, you don't have to necessarily compromise your, 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 your ethics and morals as it relates to, to business to do well. Um, and sometimes you holding your ground and putting you in a situation where I, I think we had about two months to to find a lease and for anybody or find a space for anybody knows like Oof. lease negotiation and stuff like that's not, that doesn't work out very well. Like no. <laughs> normally you need like maybe six months, not, not two, but um, it worked out really, really well. We went into low, you know, uh, not, we didn't get a whole lot of uh, our ass when it comes to the space. It pretty much got delivered shell and I turned into a, a really good general contractor in a short period of time. But <laughs> um, yeah, July, 2016, we're actually just finally, you know, tearing up the turf right now and, and doing some renovations in the, in the current space while also adding space to, uh, uh, to the area next to it. Yeah, I was just going to ask you what year that was. So it kind of gives you a good timeline of, you know, when you went to there to where you are now. And the story represents a really good, you know, a few, a few good things. I think one that like, listen, something that seems like it could be an absolute disaster for a business, right? You being kicked out, uh, on two months notice actually was almost like rocket fuel for you because you were able to show up in your business authentically the way that represents you. And like you said, your values and your business and something that your customers really recognized. Um, we actually talked with our interns last week about the music specifically. Um, and Mike, it's like a big thing at the gym about Mike talking about like, Hey, the music has to be X because we don't want it to be offensive. Um, and I think back to, um, a situation uh, where I talked with a parent. We have a competitor on the other side of town, pretty similar type of business. Um, and he had brought his daughter there, 15-year-old girl, to work out. And the, he walked in, and it was a bunch of high school and college got guys with no shirts on, blasting obscenities and music in there. And he goes, we immediately turned around and walked out. And so what Mike always says, like, we're trying to create a space where like when anybody who comes in there feels like I can leave my kid with you or my elderly clients who come in who are in their 80s feel like, okay, this isn't completely um, outside of uh, somewhere where I feel comfortable and my high school and my college and high school football kids can come here and still feel like they can get a good workout and trying to create a culture intentionally um, when people come in. And so we were talking about the idea of never lose a customer again, the idea that you you only have a small window to create someone into a long-term customer and first impressions go a really long way in doing that. And so with you changing your location, you were able to kind of represent your business more authentically 
like you said, and, and that actually propelled you guys as opposed to uh, destroying you when you kind of got pushed out of that lease on short notice. Yeah, and there's two small things, a cleaning schedule and a yeah. music playlist. Like, but those are mm -hmm. things that people see and feel. They, they uh, you know, tie immediately into your senses. There's nothing worse than walking into an F-bomb and dust it, that is significantly accumulated in a particular area of the facility, especially when it comes to the, some of those black rubber floors where it can be very, 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 very prominent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, among other things, I think just puts you in a situation where people are walking in and you want to make sure that they're getting that, 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 that you know, 10-star experience where they're getting all of these different touch points that allow them to interact with, feel, see, hear. Um, and, and by the time they're done, they, they just feel, hey, I'm, I'm in the right place. And one of those things being significantly off obscenities and cleanliness, especially, um, can be really make or break outside of the fact that you have to have at least a solid service. And I'm not even saying a high level service, mm -hmm. you just have to have a solid service and then good humans who have the uh, emotional intelligence to connect. And so if we're thinking you're, this is July, 2016, you're just in this new space. I'm assuming you probably have, how many people do you have working for you at that time? Ooh, six, seven, six. So there's a handful of you. I'm assuming at this point, you mentioned, you know, you were general contractor. You're probably also therapist, also owner, CEO. You're probably wearing a lot of hats at this point. Yep. Doing bookkeeping and who knows what else. Yeah. yeah. And at what point did you really start to think, okay, I need to, you know, you know, shift from my practitioner hat, my everyday uh, coach hat, therapist hat to I need to start to create systems and become a CEO or become a manager and level myself up in this business. I think about the idea of ebook, I mean, e-myth uh, or traction where they talk about, you know, the woman making the pies, you know, you can't make the pies and be the electrician and be the bookkeeper and be the accountant. At what point did you really start to think, okay, I need to change how I run this business, if it's going to be sustainable and be able to grow and be able to deliver it the way that I want. I think the problem, honestly, with us having our own brick and mortar is that was almost like, like putting lighter fluid on a fire. Like we, we started <laughs> to do well and opening up that office, uh, actually like, you know, like I mentioned, like propelled us to this new success and this more rapid growth, which then about 15 months later, we were opening up our second office. And it was not until the second office opened that I got the absolute smack in the face that I needed to kind of take a step back. And I, I say that because the, set, the opening the second location was such a disaster. Um, <laughs> the, the biggest issue that I had actually was I made, uh, I made some errors when it came to our insurance contracting. And just to provide some context for everybody listening, we accept a majority of the insurances that are out there. And when setting up your business uh, LLC and then going and doing contracting, there are certain decisions you can make. And I took advice from somebody that maybe had only kind of gone down one tunnel and maybe they hadn't communicated to a lot of people. So I got one person's opinion who maybe have only done it once or reached out to one person themselves because I found out that they are an anomaly or they're an outlier. But I didn't realize that because I didn't reach out to other people. We actually didn't get paid at the new office for the first three months. Oh my I God. had to let go somebody that I had hired when I found out that we were going to be unable to get paid for that long because that's about how long some of the contracts 
um, take to kind of get you in the network. I had to let somebody go within the first week of that office opening up because I knew that we were not going to be able to financially um, have this endpoint of when we're going to actually be able to provide for this person. Um, it's, uh, it's a tough thing for me to say. It's probably top two biggest failures um, and things that I, I still think about regularly. Uh, that individual went to PT school with me and she still has not spoken to me to this day. So um, not not a very, very good moment. Um, definitely something I look back on where um, I think also when you talk about work-life balance, that was a time period of my life where I probably slept the least um, because of some of the different things going on. You You don't realize how important systems and processes are. You don't realize how people dependent your business instead of process dependent your business is. Um, and I didn't probably have a full appreciation for the different shortcomings that I had. So it was after that, you know, I'd done some small stuff with Small Business Development Center. I'd done some small stuff with SCORE. Those are two really good resources for anybody looking just to get general business um, practices. But I dove into a program called Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses. Um, it is a combination of Goldman Sachs, Bloomberg, and Babson College, which is one of the better entrepreneurial uh, schools across the country. And I immersed myself in what I think I was cohort three for Baltimore. And I was going to John Hopkins um, one or two times a week. There was uh, some stuff that I'd be working on on my own. There was some stuff that uh, I'd be doing in full day classroom settings with other entrepreneurs that had businesses. So people that had a business kind of going through this mini MBA. And I, outside of more recently, probably hadn't had as much uh, of the imposter syndrome vibe as oh I did God. while being in that environment. And, you know, when you're with 30 some other people and you're on the low end of the, of, of the revenue side of things, you're on the low end of staff, um, you're, you're a little bit intimidated because, you're not sure about whether or not your questions are going to be laughed at or if, if stuff that you're going through is, is stuff that any of these other people had gone through or if people were going to actually see, like, how the heck did you get your company to be this successful? You actually don't know anything. But <laughs> fortunately, as a result of going through that program, like, if I look back at, like, timelines of personal development for me and what I needed to do to get us kind of over these these mini mountains, right? I mentioned pushing the snowball up. Like, can we, can we push it up to the next peak, so to speak, and at least rest before we continue the climb? And that was, that was, a, that was a pivotal moment. We got to a point where then the second office um, became profitable shortly after I, I finished up the, the, the program there. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, you're looking at three and four and then the, the pandemic hit. So um, it was uh, it, it was what I needed at the time, not just for myself, but for our team. Um, and I, I would not be who I am and, and we would not be where we are without without that program. And it's something I, I recommend to a lot of people that are, you know, I think I'm trying to think of what the revenue, the revenue target, I think was only like 500,000. Like it wasn't, wasn't anything uh, crazy. It, it maybe was a million, but for anybody that's kind of in that space where you're trying to, trying to get over uh, that, that seven figure hump um, and really, really establish yourself. It's a, it's a great fit. And they have them across the country. It really speaks to you um, intentionally seeking out a situation of discomfort so you could grow. Right. I think there's a lot of business owners who, and like you said, they can get to that that initial stage where 
you know, you're paying your bills, you're paying yourself, you're, you're paying your employees, but to really be able to continue to level up, whether it's different locations or increase your revenue um, and to really grow a business, you need to put yourself in a situation where you have to develop new skills, learn new skills and be uncomfortable. I think, especially for fitness professionals or rehab professionals who don't have uh, a business acumen, a degree from Babson, a degree from Bentley, one of these entrepreneurial school and programs where they learn the basics of entrepreneurship and business. They feel like you said, they have imposter syndrome. Uh, I think a lot of us, I can speak for myself, have felt it all the time in, in the business sense to say, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, but then you get in a environment like that and it completely propels you uh, because you've developed a whole new skill set that you didn't have that got you to, like you said, maybe the revenue was $500,000. You have to develop a new skill set to then get to a million dollars or get to $2 million and so on and so forth to be able to continue to grow forward. Yeah, no, I mean, if I can look back on it, I remember walking in and, and the, the, the section that was by far the most beneficial for me was a word that I don't think I'd ever even thought of before going into that program and it's operations. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about operations, you know, you're, you're thinking about your operating system. We are here interacting with technology and there's a base operating system that kind of underlies the technology functioning just at a baseline without adding all of these extra things to upgrade. And when I think of a business that's got really, really good operations, I think of a business that has a lack of friction and is something that is repeatable and is something that's very, very efficient. So it takes as few steps as possible. And we had operations, but they were solely in people's brains and they weren't in a, a manual. They weren't in a video. It was something that was not uh, consistent or shared amongst people. And we were just relying on the fact that we had hired really, 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 really well. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't until going through that operations block where we had stuff like a front desk operations manual and a marketing manual and stuff for onboarding and stuff that I look back on that, like you mentioned doing things that you don't make money off of, but are just pivotal. Like the only way that you can create abundance is by actually going through a period of time where you're almost like you have this scarcity associated with, with what it is that you're doing. Like you're, you're not creating anything other than something that is needed. And it's not leading to a direct ROI, but that indirect byproduct of what it is that you just put together, like comes back to, to help you out like 10 X because you move forward and make more bold decisions or you're less worried about potentially um, people leaving because you have things in place to make sure that when you add people, well, here we go. We're at base operating system. Sorry, you have no choice, but the floor has been brought up here as a result of the operations and the things that we put in place versus when when we were in that phase of the company, you add people and it's like, oh my gosh, well, what are you doing? Like, how, what do you mean you don't know how to do? It's so, it's so easy. Like, you know, you're, you're looking at people um, and, and the number one question and not to dive too deep into this, but the number one question that we always ask, even to this day, to people that are unable to do things at a level in which we want them to, what can we do to provide you with to ensure that you will end up with this result? Because we have, you know, X, Y, and Z, 
And despite having X, Y, and Z, like we didn't end up where we want to get to. So what can we do to change these things over here? Instead of pointing a finger at the individual, the finger is almost always pointed at the process. That's amazing. And because so often you have managers say, I don't know why they didn't understand this. It always goes back to, why didn't I do a good enough job to set them up for success to get the result that we wanted? Um, Because I think early on when you're a manager, if you haven't understood that, you can bang your head off the wall over and over and say, oh, this person doesn't get it. This person doesn't get it. And often as you mature in that position, you realize um, I didn't do a good enough job demonstrating to them or teaching them what I needed them to do. And um, that's a hard lesson to learn um, sometimes. And I think that you really hit something really important there. And it's the the process um, of creating operations. You have to understand the idea of like delayed gratification, right? It's if you're anybody in our field, probably if you're a fitness or uh, rehab professional, you probably don't enjoy that type of work where you're you know writing out a manual or writing out processes and operations. It's kind of mind numbing to do, especially if it's something that you already have in your head. It's something that like you understand, but other people don't. And because you don't get an immediate uh, gratification out of doing it. Um, it's not like when you make an Instagram post and a bunch of people like it and share it and tell you it's great. The truth of the story is you might get a dopamine hit from that, something like that, but it doesn't help you build your business. Whereas spending the time doing the boring work, writing an operations manual, doing staff training, um, planning your operations, um, are what will help a business grow. And then years, a year from now, years from now, all of a sudden you can see the result of the work that you did. 100%. And if I can just use a a quick quote that I always will reference, companies compete on process. They don't compete on vanity metrics. They don't compete on likes, impressions. Some of that stuff absolutely helps, but they compete on the process. And even if I dive into some of the vanity metrics, likes, and stuff like that, there's still a process to having some of that stuff be sustainable. So, you know, we'll just continually sit back and, and ask the question. Um, and we're going through it again this week. I and mean, we have a sales and marketing review on Wednesday where, okay, what's working? How do we know what's working? All right, what do we need to do differently? And everybody's kind of putting in this group thought. And I always will kind of tie it back into like, we need to be like the iPhone, like the iPhone. Um, and I could even say like Tesla cars at this point in time, like mm-hmm. they have regular updates. And there's, there's no uh, greater, uh, you know, kind of feeling, hopefully, for, for the people there, other than the fact that they're, they're on this continual uh, search for best. They're continually seeking out best practice, and there's no fixed mindset uh, in, in the group or in those companies. You wouldn't come out with these repeated updates um, that, that, that people need or that better people's lives um, unless you had the mindset of, of, of that, you know, individual that's on a continuous uh, search for the, and if, if it's the individual, it's self-actualization, but obviously a company's not necessarily self-actualizing, a company's trying to help people self-actualize, but you're on a continual search for, for best practice. Um, and I think that, you know, for, for people out there that are trying to determine whether or not they're entrepreneurial, you know, that's probably one of the number one questions you should ask yourself is like, how curious are you to figure out best? How curious are you to search for a best practice? And even when you think you've reached it, like, are you still figuring out if you can kind of 
tinkered a little bit. It's almost like a, uh, a I, I'm a, I call myself sometimes like a tinkerer. I'm continually yeah. like looking at something. I'm going, eh, I feel like we could do something a little bit. It's like it's at 99.9, but I know there's something a little bit more that we could be doing. Yeah, we always say in our staff meetings, when Mike always says like, we'll never find the perfect program. We'll never find the perfect way to run the gym, but we're going to continue to try to do it. And so much so that if like you've ever visited the gym, people who come, our, our, our clients especially are like, they leave on a Friday and they come back Monday and it's rearranged because we we're like, ah, we thought logistically it could run a little bit smoother if we move this equipment here. Or like one time they left on a Thursday, it came in on Monday and the turf was ripped up and our rubber on our flooring was replaced. And we moved stuff. We're like, ah, we need a little bit more space here. And we're continually thinking about, okay, what will help things run a little bit more smoothly? What equipment do we need or do we need to change to make sure we can run the groups that we want? Or um, how do we have to um, set up our staff meetings to be more efficient with our time? All of these little things over time are, are cumulative. And as your business grows and changes, you're going to have to continue to do it more, right? Because the way your business is going to run will be differently. Um, and, and yeah, I also, yeah. yeah. It's like the, the meeting thing and that like we're at the stage right now where we're just trying to get better at meetings. You know, you have these different um, areas of the company, you have different um, niche services that people are trying to uh, offer. You have, uh, different layers of, of your team. You have different locations. So you're, you're also not trying to burden people with, 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 with meetings, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, uh, that it, it, it sounds so boring, but sometimes it's the monotonous, uh, and, and very, very, um, tedious tasks that really separate you. And not to, again, dive, dive too deep in, in, into that direction, but the number one question that I'll ask people when I'm doing consulting or coaching with them from a business standpoint is talking about their actual tasks during the week. And too few people um, actually are willing to write down all of the different tasks that they do on a regular <laughs> basis, knowing that it'll actually get them to a point where they can figure out where they need to outsource or where they need to hire. Like, it's not sexy. That's like the number one way to figuring out stuff that you're going to keep on your plate or not keep on your plate. But unfortunately, everybody wants to do things that almost have like this immediate gratification um, as opposed to like you were referencing earlier, these things that build a foundation and end up with significant uh, delayed gratification later. Yeah. And and in what I heard you say to kind of in, maybe indirectly was like one, the operations, that's really what has allowed you to scale the way that you want and compete and grow this business. And the other piece is having really great people. Right? I think if you have those two things, you can have businesses that have good operations, but poor people. You can have great people, but poor operations. The two things together is really what makes you grow. And they feed each other, right? Because with your great operations, you'll be able to grow, which means you have to hire more people. And if you're sourcing great people, then you're bringing more people in your organization who are going to continue to help you you grow you're going to bring people in who are strong at things that you're not strong at who can bring different view, viewpoints and one thing i've seen is at least from my perspective you have a lot of really great people there i know a few people who uh you know who either intern to work for us or people i know guys like eric chow or anthony ionaro who uh work for you down there and so what has been for you do you have a process of how you vet people or how you hire people that helps you figure out how do these people fit at rehab to perform? How do these people fit into our culture, into our community to make sure that they're going to fit in and help your company grow the way that you want? Here's a question for you. 
how many people that work at MBSC were interns at one point or another? Almost 100%. Okay, we're not almost 100%, but we're yeah. about 60 to 70%. Mm-hmm. So I hate to say this, but hopefully it's probably a uh, uh, kind of a, a kudos for Mike, but I think he was one of the people early on that I should probably giving more credit for placing such a significant emphasis on the internship program. Within the second year, and it wasn't the first year, we started to have high school interns, college interns, and eventually DPT student interns. Hmm. Last year in 2021, we had 58 DPT interns throughout the course of the year. This past March, and for anybody who's in the PT world, they know how significant the March mailer is. It's a time (laughs) where almost all the schools are sending out um, their dates or their slots in which they're looking to have your facility, your company, uh, host their students. We had 81 universities reach out. And that's just kind of a byproduct of us creating relationships, creating good experience, creating relationships, creating good experience. Um, And that'll continue to be something that we... Um, you know, kind of focus on. I mean, if you if you can run a business that delivers an amazing service, why can't you also put process in place to make, honestly, uh, what a lot of people are struggling with right now, which is hiring, a non-issue? I just went to a business industry conference and the amount of people that are complaining about staffing, and I'm sitting here and going, we literally have our next five to 10 hires already mapped out like (laughs) we know the four people that we're bringing on at the end of the summer already we know people that we're already talking to to bring on later in the year but you create a deep bench when you have an internship program and it's not just about having an internship program it's about being intentional about the internship program because when you're Mm -hmm. intentional about the internship program the the people that interact with it they they feel it they they feel that it's different especially when they have the opportunity to go through for some of them, three to five different internships before they finish DPT school. They walk in and they go, God, everything else was awful compared to <laughs> experience here, you know? But because we put time and energy in, we put, you know, we're, we're doing things to actually support them, not just A, either put them in the corner, B, give them towels and a squirt bottle, or C, just have them come in and see all of the patients. Because if I had to summarize 90% of the conversations we have with students, they're going to fall into one of those three different buckets where they're either doing nothing, they're aiding, or they're potentially just working and they almost feel like they should be uh, you know, collecting a full-time paycheck. So the internship program for us um, was a no-brainer, and it's definitely paid us off. When you look at our team, um, you know, yeah, like I said, sixty to seventy percent of the people have been through the internship program. Yeah, I always say, I mean, it for us, it, it lets them almost interview you and figure out: Do I fit in the culture here? Is this an environment I want to work in? Are these the people I want to be around? And for you, you get essentially a three-month interview out of them. Anyone can sit down at an interview and make a, a nice resume and CV and put on the persona that they think you want, but seeing them work for however, however long you have them for an internship, um, you can really figure out, okay, who fits. And it almost like by the end of it, it's kind of apparent to both sides that this is going to be a good fit for you. This is going to be a good fit for us. And it's the same exact thing for us that right now we had, this is the, 
uh, essentially the third week. They have a week of staff training where we just train and educate and practice. And then we got into the first week of summer last week uh, with about 20 interns for our summer. We have 20 over the course of the summer between our two locations that we split up. And um, for us, like we're hitting the ground running. We're always starting, already starting to figure out, okay, who seems to be a good fit? Uh, who, who might be potential hires uh, as we get towards August, who we're going to keep. And for us, that's a, a consistent feeder system of young talent um, and young coaches in the area who we can immediately bring on and have them ready to work on day one, because they just spent the last three months with us, essentially practicing, learning and assisting and growing with us um, early in their career. Try before you buy, and that goes yeah. that goes both ways, right? We yeah. try before we make a decision. They try before they make a decision. But I think, much like you're mentioning, you know, the level of investment that we put into them, just as a student, makes them optimistic about the fact that if they join the team, that there's going to probably be even more significant of an investment. And I think. Um, at least speaking for a for a business that is, and I'm sure it's very similar. I think 46 or 47 out of about 52 employees at this point are millennials. Like, <laughs> if you're yep. speaking to the millennial, like they want to know what's in it for them. They want to know how the company is supporting their growth. They want to know what the company is doing to not just take care of them professionally, but personally. And I mm -hmm. think when you see touch points of that and you hear about it from you know, the, the, the team, when people are interning, it, it makes these conversations much easier where, you know, we send out a casual Google form at the end of the DPT internship, and we know how many people want to work with us, what locations they want to work at. And then there's obviously a, 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 a second uh, part of that, a bookend of the, of the staff there. What do the staff there think of this person? Is this person hireable? Um, and it makes the current climate right now, I'm worrying about things that a lot of other people are maybe not able to because they're stuck back at this step of just attracting talent. I just I think we're back. Yeah, yeah. The recording kept going, so we're good. Yep, all good on my end. Um, but I to speak to uh, the internship idea. You said the investment, I think, is really important, and something that we've kind of learned over the time is like we really go intentionally to build a curriculum where from day one we have uh they have to get a big binder where there's articles there's books there's weekly meetings weekly educational time that we're trying to invest into them and like you said what i i've kind of learned now with this population that we have you said like i'm mostly millennials i'm besides mike and bob i'm the oldest person that works there and i'm 34 um and so the we're continually trying to invest as much energy we can into training and education, whether that's providing them opportunities to do education once they're hired, give them a stipend, um, and then continually providing education, bringing in speakers throughout the year. This is something that's really attractive to them, but it's also something that lifts our business um, and continually rises the tide of education, so to speak, for everybody that's there. Um, and our internship directors now, we have uh, Ben Connolly and Dan McGinley, who are doing it now, It's kind of uh, have really taken it and continued to level it up where um, every single week, our staff members um, myself included, we're rotating through doing different curriculum with them. Hey, I have a meeting with them on Friday. I'm going to do a whole hour with the internships, uh, with the interns all on like assessment. And then next week, Dan will take it and do work on nutrition and how we kind of lay out our nutrition plan. And so by the time they get out of 
our, you know, 12 week internship experience, we always say it's like they, they get that compressed 10,000 hours. Um, and they come out the other side, if they're not going to be with us, we know we're gonna be able to place them somewhere they're where they're going to be successful. And then that they almost become a flagship for us, uh, for us to find more interns and more help in the future. So it continues to compound and be a valuable, um, hiring process for us, even if we don't necessarily take some of these people and hire them ourselves. I'm waiting for Mike Boyle staffing agency. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Right. There's people out there that need trainers right now. And I'm, I'm just sensing an opportunity. Exactly. Um, well, so now kind of fast forwarding to where you are now, where you're, you know, going into like, you're looking to put in an eighth location. I think of this idea where they say like the three and 10 rule that like every time your business grows in multiples of like three or 10, things have to change processes and operations have to change and so now where you've significantly grown you think since 2016 to where you are now um in 2022 what have you seen over the last like since covid should i i should say i think you've you've grown significantly since the end of covid um what are the challenges that you face personally as like a business owner um in in scaling now to the next level since then i, I think my my personal wants are the biggest thing that I'm realizing that I have to shelf, uh, at least shelve for a little while, um, if not potentially forever. And my personal wants are to connect. <laughs> and I want to be, um, you know, on a, on, on a regular basis, connecting with our people and always spending time with them. But I actually don't get a ton done when I'm doing that. So um, kind of shelving my, my personal want with regards to presence and having these conversations and being in a situation where I'm seen all the time and instead carving out a schedule where I have some time, two days a week, really, at this point, where I kind of bookend my week where it's like, hey, I'm available, but I'm remote. I'm either at home, I'm in a coffee shop, but I'm somewhere where I literally can't get interrupted because no matter what, if I take my laptop and I go to one of the offices and I'm sitting there and there's anybody around, I would much rather talk to all of the people than doing any of the things that involve a pen and a paper, G Suite, emails, or whatever project that I'm potentially working on at, at, at a given moment. Um, so that, that's probably the hardest thing for me, just recognizing where your personal affinity is but also recognizing where you're needed. Like, where is my seat on the bus um, the the best? And it's not always in the driver's seat. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and that's something that I've, I've definitely learned over the years where I think my leadership style in the early years was the person that, you know, you're, you're running into battle with the, the flag in your hand and the, and the, and the sword, you know, um, versus at this point in time, like there's moments for that. And there's moments where I have to kind of be out in front and be seen or maybe take the initiative or take charge somewhere. And there's other situations where I'm kind of helping people be that person, you know, and, and helping them kind of directly. And you hate using the word like direct reports, but like we're getting better at kind of segmenting, like, who is your team? Who is your team? Who is your team? And I'm actually having more conversations with them, helping them uh, problem solve a little bit, putting them in a situation where they kind of have the same feelings I do sometimes where I'm driving the bus. But sometimes they have their own, you know, bus of, of people and, and I need to help them kind of steer the ship. So I think those are probably the two biggest things. Shelfing my personal wants, 
um, and then recognizing that I'm not the person that necessarily has to be driving the bus at a given moment. And sometimes I might not even be on a bus because <laughs> that person has, has their people and I've kind of waved for them, uh, you know, in, in the morning as they, as they go about their route and, and spend time with and, and pick up the people that, that, that are a part of more their direct reports or in, involved in a certain aspect of the company that I quite honestly don't have as much knowledge of anyway. Yeah. And when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about clerical stuff, you know, front desk, some of the stuff from an insurance and billing standpoint, like I superficially know what's going on, but thank God we have some of the people we do because I would have absolutely no clue. But that's like you said, where you attract some of the right people, um, you help them with the process and then you get, you know, you kind of let them get to express their genius. And we have some people that are like just incredibly, incredibly intelligent in their different areas, whether it's, you know, administrative side, marketing, ops, some of these things that really, really allow a company to, to kind of hit the gas pedal. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, step in maturity for a business owner when you can begin to trust people, like you said, to show their own genius or execute in the way that they know best. Um, once you start to get processes in place and say, listen, now I can, you can have your own team, you can build this and I, you can report to me, we can check in from there. And it seems like you said about shelving your personal wants, often the place that we're needed is the place where there's the most discomfort. Like you said, sitting on the computer um, in, in the G suite or doing whatever have you have to do with the legwork on the computer. Whereas it'd be much more comfortable. I know of speaking for myself as well, to be out on the floor, be going to talking to the coaches, talking to the interns, interacting with clients. But then the day goes by and you say, Oh, I didn't get any of these um, really essential foundational things done that I need to get done today. And you have, when you're, I find myself personally, like when I'm doing those things, you have that feeling like, Oh, I should be out there. Or, I should be socializing and, in your head, you're saying that that's what I need to be doing for the business. But in reality, it's you rationalizing, getting away from probably the things that you really need to be doing that are probably a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but in reality, probably have the long-term payoff that we need uh, to keep the business moving forward. Otherwise, you become, and I've called myself it sometimes, you become the bottleneck yeah. that everybody is waiting to get unclogged before other things happen. Like, I did spend half of my day uh, in the morning just at one of the offices just to catch up with two staff members on a small thing. But then I spent the rest of the day at home. And like the amount of stuff that I actually get done when there's no music, nobody else around, and I'm just locked in and I'm a little bit, well, probably a lot of bit, you know, I got my ADD diagnosis when I was younger, but I, I figured out a flow. And like, regardless of how much blocking tackling going on, Normally, it's a, a mix of like pieces are getting moved throughout the course of the day. Maybe I only had 15 minutes of attentiveness and I'm blocking it later. But I, I, I kind of find my flow a lot better um, in these periods of time where, yeah, there's no distractions. It sounds so simple and I've heard it a million times, but sometimes you have to create a, create a space where, you know, you're able to block out distractions and actually get shit done. Yeah, I mean, well, it, I mean, it's really inspiring to hear your story because I think there's a lot of fitness professionals and rehab professionals that want to look at probably what you're doing and think like, I really want to be able to have that. Um, and so being able to hear from someone who, you know, you started, like you said, subletting a space to getting thrown out to being in your own space and, and being probably overwhelmed and then figuring out as you go, okay, this is how you become a business owner. This is how you grow and scale a business to the point where you are now where 
like you said, you're looking at location number eight and with the eyes on continually growing and expanding rehab to perform um, into the future. So I think that, you know, if you're listening to this um, as a fitness professional or a rehab professional, um, you know, take to heart some of the things that Josh shared as far as operations going into a, a a place where it might be foreign to you going to, like you said, a Goldman Sachs uh, business accelerator program. I know there's a lot of things like that out there where you can go and le- learn and develop those skills. Um, and ultimately, typically, you're going to come out the other side, um, you know, a much different viewpoint or a much different uh, business owner uh, for going through that. So, I mean, I appreciate you spending the time tonight. Uh, this is a good hour uh, of conversation. And uh, before we wrap up, if there's anything um, or anywhere you'd like to point the people listening where they can find you, um, I know you're a good Twitter follow, uh, but if there's anywhere where they can find your information and, and reach out to you, please go ahead and you can share that now. Yeah. I mean, if anybody wants to reach out to me directly, Twitter, uh, Instagram, or Dare I say TikTok now? Oh, here we um, go! I, man, I, I caved. I caved, yeah. and I sit here as my wife, who's in the other room, uh, just got a lead for real estate on TikTok. Like it's it's crazy. I got to jump in. I almost wish that I jumped in earlier, but that's at dr josh funk at dr josh funk, Twitter, Instagram, uh, or TikTok. And then for anybody that wants to keep track of anything and everything rehab to perform. It's going to be at Rehab to Perform. That's on TikTok, Instagram, uh, and we have a Facebook group called R2 Peeps for anybody that wants to join in that. But, yeah, happy to serve as a resource. I wouldn't be here if other people did not uh, open their time, open their schedule, and then open up their brain to me. Uh, I try my best to pay it forward, and I'm always happy to to jump on or help people uh, troubleshoot um, for, for little things here and there. All right, and I'll put all that information and links in the show notes. So if you're listening to that, you'll be able to scroll right down and get that and find Josh, find Rehab to Perform. And uh, thank you all for listening. Josh, thanks for taking the time and have a great night. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it.